So spring is here and I'm going to talk about harvest. <laughs> it is a little bit odd to, to be talking about harvest at a time when farmers wish they could get out in the fields. Uh, but that's where we are in, in uh, this Revelation passage. It's all about harvest here, Revelation 14, verses uh, uh, 14 to the end of the, end of the chapter. Uh, but I can make some predictions about harvest right now, and I will be right. Okay, number one, uh, not all fields will be ready at the same time. <laughs> number two, not all grain in all fields will be ready at the same time. <laughs> number three, farmers will be cutting around draws to, to cut what is ready uh, while avoiding what is not ready in the field. This summer, or this, I was going to say this summer, might be this fall. Who knows? Uh, understanding that, we understand harvest, that's what harvest is. Harvest is you cut when it's ready. You can't, you can't do anything about that. It's, it's the grain tells you when it can be cut. You don't get to tell the grain when it's going to be cut. Well, God, as he is looking at the harvest of the earth, and that's what, if you look at, if your Bible has a heading like mine, mine on top of verse 14 says, the harvest of the earth. And he waits until it's ready. He is not going to to do partial cuts, around cuts. He's not going to skip. He's going to do everything at once. That's what we find here. The earth is about to be harvested. Verses 14 through 16 tell us the harvest is ripe. The time is ripe. Verses 17 through 20 tell us it will be terrible. Okay. Uh, with that established, verses 14 through 16 of Revelation chapter 14, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud... And seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Okay, so uh, there's a lot of details in this that you can get confused about, and I want to keep the big picture in mind, which is saying this is telling us the harvest is ripe. Okay, but still, you want to pay attention to the details. Who is this seated on the cloud? He is described, he is like a son of man, he has a golden crown, he has a sharp sickle in his hand, and the proper Sunday school answer is Jesus, but I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> the arguments for this being Jesus is Jesus is called the Son of Man in Scripture. The crown that he wears makes it certainly sound like, like it's talking about Jesus. Uh, but the arguments against, and, and I don't think it is Jesus, is the word another. Right? Look at this passage. Uh, verse 14 tells us, One like a son of man with a golden crown. Verse 15, And another angel came out of the temple, calling to him who sat on the cloud. Verse 17, then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Verse 18, and another angel came out from uh, the altar, the angel who has authority over the, the voice. So we have these, the, the, another angel, another angel, another angel. The first another seems to imply there was a previous, and of course there's angels all through here, but especially the one with the sickle. The second one, another angel came out with a sickle in his hand. It makes it sound like this first, angel, first being is an angel. Uh, and so the explanation, uh, I mean, so we, that, that's the first thing, is this word another. Today's scripture reading, we were reading in Matthew 13, 38 to 42. And I agree, it was kind of an odd-sounding passage for a scripture reading. They're usually supposed to be nice and fluffy, so people don't run out before we get there. Uh, and, and this one really wasn't, but I'm going to reread it. Matthew 13, or at least part of it, verses 38 through 42. And Jesus is talking about the harvest, and he's talking about angels doing the harvesting. 
Matthew 13, verses 38 through 42. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy... Let's see, is that the... Am I in the right place? Okay. And the, en- sorry. and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. And so we find a very clear parallel between this in Revelation and this in Matthew. Uh, and, and so it's really likely we're talking about an angel here. I don't know if it matters a whole lot. So, and how do we respond for the arguments for? Well, son of man can mean nothing more than human in appearance. One like the son of man. Uh, and uh, the crown represents authority, but we've seen, as I said, a lot of angels in Revelation. We've also seen a lot of crowns in Revelation, and Jesus isn't wearing all of them. Uh, and so it represents authority. I think the harvester on the cloud is probably an angel. Uh, just uh, a detail. You know, like I say, you've got to deal with the details. That detail's been done with. Let's wipe it away and move on. Uh, because it's time to harvest is the really important phrase here. Uh, Revelation chapter 14, verse 15, uh, says this. Another angel came out from the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. He says it is fully ripe. Uh, And and the word fully ripe refers to grain harvest. It means well dried. Right? So so he's going to talk about a grape harvest in a few minutes, which is really interesting, that the difference, a grain harvest and a grape harvest. Uh, but, he, but, but right now he's using the picture of a grain harvest. He says it's fully ripe. There's not places you have to skip. There's not places you're worried about. You know, and and it's, it's kind of interesting to be thinking about, again, now, because you still haven't got the spring crop in the ground. But, you know... Three months from now, you're going to be driving by those fields. We're all going to be doing it. Farmers are going to actually know what they're looking at. I'm going to say, looks like it's not ready yet. Or I'm going to say, looks ready to me. What are they waiting for? And the farmers are going to say, you don't know anything. Okay, <laughs> which would be true. But, but we're, going to, we're going to look and we're going to see, oh, it's green there. A little bit early in that field. Green there, it's not ready. This is going to be a time when the farmer looks and says, it is fully ripe. That is the exact picture. And it's, it's so nice to be in a wheat-growing community and have this as the, the, the passage because it's so easy to, to see and understand what he's saying. It, it, it's a contrast to the grape harvest. Uh, this would be wheat. It could be barley, but the idea is fully dry. There are no green spots in the draws. There are no places you have to go back in a week or two. The harvest is ripe, and God's coming in to give a full, complete harvest. And and we have this idea, the world is completely ready to be harvested. God has waited the full amount of time. What's really interesting is we have some things in Scripture. They aren't described quite with the harvest picture, but we have a very, this this teaching is, is, is foreshadowed, if you will, in Scripture. If we go all the way back to Genesis, in chapter 15 of Genesis, God is speaking to Abraham, and he's promising him the land. Uh, And we're all familiar with the promised land, and it's called promised land because it was promised, but it wasn't given. 
right? Joshua and the people, 400 years later, were going to enter the promised land. It was still promised, but it hadn't been given. They're going to take what was promised, but it was promised 400 years before to Abraham. Okay, Genesis 15, verses uh, 13 through 16, tell us what is going on. Genesis 15, starting at verse 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, uh, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners, or wanderers, or travelers, in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Now you know where I get the number 400 from. <laughs> okay, But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall go out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For, get this phrase, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, he's saying the Amorites are not yet ready for harvest. These are people, I am going to give you their land when I remove them from it, but their sin is not yet complete. They have not yet reached such a point that I will judge them. That's what he's saying. And, and so when we look at, at Revelation and he's saying the harvest is ripe, he's saying they, the world has reached that point. Uh, at that point in Revelation, he's saying the world has reached that point. We go for, uh, 400 years later. Before we get to Joshua, we're in the book of Leviticus, if you'd like to, to follow that through a little bit. Leviticus chapter 18, God is telling them uh, about the land they're going into and telling them not to do the sins of that land because it was because of those sins that he cast them out. Leviticus chapter 18. Should I give you a page number? Uh, sorry, <laughs> I'm just such a bad guy. Leviticus 18, 24 to 28. Do not make for yourselves, God is speaking to, to Moses, do not, make for yourself, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things, for by these nations, for by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For the people of the land who were before you did all of these abominations, so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. And what a powerful picture of the land re relieving itself of these sinful people that are on it. And, and 400, so God promised to Moses, when the sin of these people is complete, then you'll come into the land. And in Leviticus we find, because of their sinfulness, they have been removed from the land, and we have, they are destroyed. And we could go on. Uh, to, to other passages, when they enter the promised land in, in Deuteronomy, they're instructed to kill everyone. Joshua goes in into the promised land and he destroys everyone. And God says, I, drove, I sent the hornet and the, the hailstorm before you uh, because God is taking the credit for clearing them out. And it's kind of interesting because as we read this and people hear this today, they say that's genocide. Genocide is bad. Right? Worst sin you can do. God is guilty of genocide. Uh, and, and we say this is immoral. And, and the world accuses God of genocide. And I've heard people try to defend God and say, well, it wasn't genocide because of this, that, or the other thing. I'm going to say God has the right to say that and to do that. And if you would argue against God's right to eliminate those people from the land, then you will argue against God's right to have final judgment on the world. But your arguing about it doesn't change that it's going to happen, right? And so we have to submit and say, it does, may not feel good to me, but it's going to happen. 
very parallel with other truths we find in the Bible. Want a parallel that's, 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 that's true, but, but makes me uncomfortable? Hell. I don't like hell. I don't like the concept of hell. I wish there wasn't hell. <laughs> but the Bible teaches there is. Same concept, God judges sinners and he chooses how. Our job, we don't get to choose what God will do. We get to choose how we will respond to what God says he will do and has done in the past. Right? He, he has demonstrated, we have this demonstration in Genesis of what God will do on a much larger scale in the future. We need to pay attention to that. God has the right to judge people and he has the right to judge peoples. And if you want to argue about the morality of it, you're arguing, uh, your argument will not change anything. It doesn't change what God will do. You can argue about whether you like it. I don't have an argument with whether you like it or not. That's, actually, it's, it's irrelevant whether you like it or not. God waited 400 years to fulfill his promise to, to Abraham. He waited until judgment was ripe, and he, then he executed judgment. And he is now waiting until the world is ripe. And I know these, lips have passed, these words have passed through many of your lips. What possibly could God still be waiting for? When we look at the world around us and we see the things that we not only see done but hear official approval of people doing, when we find out the only bad guy is the guy who will take his stand for godly standards, we go, God, what else could you possibly be waiting for? I don't know. There's a little green somewhere. <laughs> yeah, there's a little green somewhere that he hasn't brought this back by yet, but, but there's, there's something. It's not quite ready yet, or we'd see it. When the harvest is right, he will not delay. He will send out the harvesters. Okay? So that's the first thing. The harvest is ripe. And then we move on to the harvest will be terrible. Verses 17 through 20. And then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out after, from the altar, the angel who has the authority over the fire, and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city and blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia, or your Bible might say 184 miles. Okay, very, very big. Okay, we have another angel with another sickle for another harvest. This time it would be grapes. And, and, and this might be, there's a couple of options here of what is being said here. And I'm not going to say I know the right answer. Uh, and in fact, you may come up with more options. I don't know, because it is kind of confusing what is going on here. The first thing you might say, well, the first one was a harvest of the good, and the second is a harvest of the wicked. But you're going to have a real hard time supporting that in light of everything else that we saw there uh, and everything that was said. It, it doesn't seem quite right. Uh, Another is, is that the first describes those who have, been, have died so far. And, and uh, the next would be des describing those who are yet to die specifically or particularly in the Battle of Armageddon, which is, is where that picture of the wine press and 1600 stadia uh, make a lot of sense. Uh, it could be uh, that it's describing the same harvest, and the first one is to describe the readiness and the scope, and the second one is to describe the bloodiness and how gruesome a thing it is. Uh, and, and all those are possibilities, and I don't know a whole lot for sure on that, but I do want to know, I, I, I do know this for sure. You don't harvest grapes with a sickle. 
He sent out an angel with a sickle to harvest grapes. Does God not understand grapes? <laughs> like, well, how, how could I, who have never, well, I, I must have, I don't think I have ever picked a grape in my life. You know, I, I'll get the grapes from the store and they have little things and I'll pick it off that. But, but otherwise, I don't think I've ever picked a grape off a grapevine in my life. How could I, who, who have never picked a grape, understand that, but God not understand that? You don't harvest grapes with a sickle to harvest grapes. You harvest grapes with a sickle to destroy them. But you are not just destroying the grape. You are destroying the vine. You are ending that vineyard. God did not make a mistake here. He doesn't know less about grapes than I do. <laughs> I guarantee you that. Uh, he doesn't, he's, he's, he's not ignorant. He is giving a specific picture with a specific meaning. He is destroying the grapevine. But he does describe throwing the grapes into the wine press uh, that's going to be happening. They are thrown into the wine press of the wrath of God. And if you look at the verse, it is not grape juice or wine that flows out. It is blood. The wine press, verse 20, was wine press was trodden outside the city and blood flowed down the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for 1600 stadia. And it's, it's, a, it's very clearly a metaphor for people dying, for people being slain here. As gross as it sounds, I think God switched from grain to grapes in this picture because grapes are juicy and he wanted to present a gruesome picture. I think he wanted us to know how horrible, that's why I describe this as horrible, how horrible this is going to be. This is, there, there's no way this is as pretty and clean as a wheat harvest or a barley harvest. And the grapes are gathered and they're thrown into the wine press of God and it says, the blood is as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So four feet high by, by 184 miles by who knows how wide and you go, I don't think that's possible. <laughs> you know, yeah, I have, uh, I, the, the number they tell us is six quarts of blood in the average human being. That's a gallon and a half. Okay, you'd have to put me in a really narrow crack for my blood to be higher than I am, right? And, and adding more people doesn't solve the problem. It compounds it, <laughs> right? It doesn't fix the problem. You go, so so I, I don't think this is trying to create an exactly literal picture. But at the same time, I think he is using a picture we have uh, in the book of Isaiah that will maybe make this make a lot of sense. And, and as we look at this, Isaiah 63, as we look at this picture, you will see uh, it's, it's really likely um, this is what's being referred to. As I said many times, in order to make sense out of Revelation, you have to read the rest of the book. Revelation continually uses pictures and words and understandings from previously in the, the, the Bible. Revelation chapter 63, I think, is the picture, uh, presents the same picture of what is going on here. And as I go through it, I think that becomes plain to see. Chapter 63, verse 1, Who is this who comes from Edom? in crimsoned garments from Basra, who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I have treaded the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their life blood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath. I poured out 
out their lifeblood on the earth. And we have this picture of being spattered with their blood. And I don't think we're actually looking at a sea of blood there. I think we're looking at blood spattering in such a violent picture. Uh, bloodshed with blood flying in all directions. And, and I, if I'm wrong, I will humbly apologize. I'm not going to, to try to to say this is the right answer, this is not. But this one makes a lot of sense to me. It's describing the viciousness, the, the widespread death, the horribleness of what's going to happen. Uh, and, and so we have this picture. And by the way, it seems to be supported in Revelation chapter 19. And it's good when we don't merely go to the, the Old Testament or something previous, but we stick in the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 to 15. We have the rider on a white horse. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on his white horses, on white horses, and from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And we have this continuing picture of Jesus trampling the grapes, of spattering with the blood, uh, Jesus on the horse. And, and I think that's the picture we, we have there. And by the way, that's why this picture might just describe Armageddon itself. Uh, the battle is there. Micah, Stick, stick, going back again to the Old Testament. I hope you don't mind all this flipping through, through the Bible. Micah chapter uh, 4 gives us another picture. Uh, if you're in, the, in there, uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah. As I was saying that, I just flipped away from Micah. <laughs> uh, Micah chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. Or if you have a large print Bible, it could be page 14, 18. <laughs> Micah chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan, that he has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron. I will make you your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their gain to the God their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. And he describes uh, peoples being brought to the land of Israel to be destroyed. And the bloodshed of the battle is gruesome. And, and I, I don't know this, but if, if I was to make, I'm still trying to make sense of that 1600 stadia. You know, what is that about? What is 184 miles about? And, and uh, if it's not literal, then I think we have a picture maybe of the length occupied by the invading armies. You know, the length of the columns of the soldiers and armies from the world coming together to besiege and attack Israel. Uh, to besiege and take away from God the people. C gathering together to do, I shouldn't say from Israel, from God. They're not coming to do battle with Israel. They're coming to do battle with God. Uh, and and uh, that, that actually makes sense. The other, the other, another possibility that's intriguing is, is 1600 is uh, 40 times 40. 
and, and it's, you know, 40 is a significant number, and so the, sig the symbolic meaning of it, and that could be there, but, but I'm afraid I will admit I get a little lost in that. Okay, now, here's the question that we have to deal with. Aside from the part of us that curiously wants to know what's going on when we read Revelation, and we read this and we go, I wonder what that means, I wonder what that means, I wonder what that means, is that Revelation is all put there for a reason. So, okay, God, how does this bless me? <laughs> How does the answer is real simple. There's more than one harvest. You know, there's the harvest of the unrighteous, and there is a harvest of the righteous. Uh, we want to participate in that other harvest. Let me, let me read uh, a few more harvest passages for you. Uh, Matthew 13, verse 3. Uh, and he told them many things in a parable, saying, A sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path. And he goes on, he tells the rest of the parable. And if we skip down, he explains the parable. Uh, and uh, let's see, starting at verse uh, eight, 18, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown. And he goes on and explains it, but let's skip ahead to verse uh, 30, 23, because... That's the part that, that emphasizes what I want to hit. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, another sixty, and in another thirty. What's he saying? There's another harvest. There's another harvest. We are the sowers of that other harvest, or we are the crop, or we are both. You know, it's, like, it's like, you know, I tell you the truth, you know, what is a pastor? A pastor is a shepherd who is a sheep. <laughs> <laughs> Never forget the pastor is also a sheep. I like to think he's a dumb sheep. <laughs> but, but that's uh, my personal opinion. I think you might agree. Uh, you know what? First of all, be in the right harvest. Be in the right harvest. If by any chance as you sit here, you say, not merely this is all new to me, because this is all, you know, this is, uh, for a lot of us, this is just walking on un familiar ground when we go through Revelation. And, and so the, the learning, you might be learning some things that way, but one of the things you might learn as you hear this message, you never, I never know, I'm, sometimes I'm amazed what God uses to touch people's hearts, what God uses to speak to them. If you, as you sit here through any part of the service, God has, has landed in your mind or in your heart that you have not trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that you need him as your savior. The warnings I have spoken are true. The warnings about the harvest, the warnings about hell, they are true. You want to flee that. You do not want to be part of that. And I invite you today, without wasting time, because you don't know you have tomorrow, today ask Jesus Christ to be your savior. It's really easy, you just tell him, Jesus, I want you to be my savior not complicated. We had communion service to remember him, right? He already did what we need for salvation. The only thing he needs is our response. The other part of it is simply be a sower. Be a sower. Help others. You know, the, the communion, or the, the offertory, rescue the perishing. You know, rescue, rescue the perishing, care for the dying, snatch them in pity from sin in the grave. Jesus doesn't 
hate the sinners. He loves the sinners. He wants the sinners to come to him. We have a responsibility and we have an opportunity uh, to do what we can to bring others to him. We always, if we read Revelation, you know, something, something important, maybe the most important thing to remember about Revelation is that it's real. It's not far off, it's not fanciful, it's not for some other time or place. The lesson it has for us is real and it's for today. The harvest may not be yet, but prepare, preparation for the harvest? <laughs> I'm sorry, we have several farmers in here, I, I, and I don't want to ask the question, when do you start preparing for harvest? <laughs> Amen. Amen. And that's the answer for you and me. Let's pray. Father God, I pray that each one of us here is ready for the harvest. Lord, at the same time, I pray that every one of us is getting ready for the harvest and helping others to do the same. I ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.